If you ever wondered what you'd get if you mixed story elements from Night of the Creeps, The Thing, The Terminator, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, well, today's movie gives you one awesome answer. Got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. I'm gonna take you to the bank. Welcome, B-Movie Maniacs, to another episode of B-Movie Babylon, a safe space for trash cinema lovers where we firmly believe the B in B-Movie stands for brilliant. I'm your host, Mike Bracken. Some of you may know me as the Horror Geek on YouTube or from my stint on Comedy Central's old pop culture game show, Beat the Geeks. Others will remember me as that dick on social media. And really, I'm all of the above. No matter how you know me, thanks for being here as we stalk the forgotten corners of the video store in search of the best B-movies ever made. Whether you love martial arts mayhem, low-budget rip-offs of popular movies, direct-to-video skinamax flicks, classic horror fair, sleaze, or exploitation, I've got you covered. Today, we're tackling another beloved but underappreciated cult film from the 1980s, 1987's wildly entertaining and surprisingly clever sci-fi horror flick, The Hidden. This one is sort of like The Thing, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Terminator, and Night of the Creeps all rolled up into one totally awesome flick that should have been a bigger deal at the box office. We'll talk about how this one came into existence, the trials and tribulations of shooting a B-movie for New Line Cinema, and the enduring legacy of The Hidden as it approaches its 40th birthday in a few years. But first, let's talk a bit about how I discovered this one, which has gone on to become one of my all-time favorite cult flicks. I turned 15 in October of 1987 and was a freshman in high school. I didn't have a car or a license, although I did have my learner's permit and I was already comfortable driving an automatic. However, my attempts to master the intricacies of the stick shift in a Ford F-150 my dad owned had caused him to basically give up in frustration. It wasn't so much a me issue as it was that truck, because I'd easily master the manual transmission a few years later when I got my first car. At any rate, I was still pretty dependent on my folks and older siblings of friends for rides everywhere. The tantalizing freedom of a driver's license was closer than ever, but I often felt kind of stuck because my parents worked and weren't going to drive me all over creation for my social life. I started to ride the bus to school. Talk about indignities. Fortunately, at school, I was pretty popular. I was kind of like a Rosetta Stone of various cliques. I had friends who were goths, I had friends who were metalheads, I was cool with the jocks, the nerds, the preps, and the stoners. I don't know why, I'm an introvert. I really don't care to be around that many people, but people always gravitate towards me and have since I was a kid. So, while I was amongst the oldest kids in my class, because I was born in October, which meant I started a year later than most of the kids I went to school with, I always got along with the older upperclassmen too. And they had cars. Which, in a lot of ways, was my ticket to freedom. Anyway, that year I had algebra with a guy who was older than me, and I cannot for the life of me remember his name. But he'd just moved here from New York, and we'd bonded over a love of rap music and trash cinema. And uh, even better, he had a car. It's like an old beater Dotson. Didn't even have air conditioning. But for me, I think might as well have been a Rolls Royce. So anyway, we'd hang out a lot on weekends. We'd usually wind up at what the locals called the Circle, which was a series of dreadful, undeveloped streets on the edge of the woods outside of town, where we all stood around in the dark getting eaten alive by bugs. If it was a really special weekend, there might be some terrible house party that was destined to end with multiple fistfights and the cops rousting everyone. But wherever you wound up, it was never cool to be at those places too early. I mean, unless you were a dork. So we'd often cruise through the mall or catch a movie at the Embassy 6 before heading to our final destination for the evening. I've already talked about the Embassy 6 in a previous episode, so I'll spare you the full recap here, but it was the B-movie theater locally. 
We had a four screen theater much closer to home, but they didn't really get the horror movies and the action or sci-fi trash I love so much. The embassy, on the other hand, was my kind of place. Already run down in the 80s, it got all of the trash. When I wound up a manager there a few years after graduating, it felt like I'd come home. Honestly, I should have never left that job. Anyway, it was one of those nights in either late October or early November of 1987 that we headed out to do something. I honestly don't remember where we wound up that night, but as we drove south on 19, we passed the embassy and I was like, hey, let's stop and see what's playing. The conundrum here was this. I was 15 with no job and no real money. I mean, I'd sometimes skip lunch and use my lunch money for records or movies or whatever because I didn't even really get an allowance. If we went to a movie, whatever else came after was going to have to be free because I probably had $5 to my name and the ticket was going to be $4 or something like that. I mean, I might have come away from this with enough change for a crappy McDonald's hamburger, but there was no way I had money to pay for anything else. But that night we had time to kill and the mall was already closing, so we stopped. And they had the hidden. But the catch was they also had John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which had released a week earlier. Let me tell you, it was a real Sophie's Choice moment as we stood there near the box office trying to decide what to see. In the end, we let the universe decide, and it came down to the greatest tool for making decisions in human history. A good old coin toss. Heads, we were seeing the hidden. Tails, it was Prince of Darkness. The coin came up heads, and I wouldn't see Prince of Darkness until it hit video. And the rest is history. While I adore both of those films, I have always sort of regretted not seeing Prince of Darkness on the big screen. That film, with the lush visuals Carpenter and Gary Kibbe created, begs to be seen on a huge screen. The Hidden, while competently shot, works just as well on a television, in my opinion. But at the time, I had no idea, and the fates had decided. To not see The Hidden after the coin toss told us to was inviting a lot of bad luck into our lives. I'm very superstitious. Needless to say, that Monday found me talking about The Hidden, and when it hit video that next spring, well, a lot of my friends got stuck watching it, and the majority of them seemed to have the same appreciation for it I did. Revisiting it in 2023, that appreciation on my part has only grown. This is very close to the perfect B-movie, the kind they really just don't make anymore. But enough of my long-winded rambling, let's take a quick break and then we'll dive into the details that led to the creation of this cult classic. The Hidden opens with the credits over what appears to be some innocuous bank camera security footage. But then this dude pulls out a shoddy and starts blasting. There really is something to be said for starting in media res and kicking off your movie with a high-octane action sequence. After he wastes a few people, he heads out, but he breaks the first rule of bank robbery by stopping and staring directly into the security camera. It's a cool little character moment. You know this guy has absolutely zero concern about being identified. Badass. Director Jack Shoulder says the original script opened not in the bank, but with Detective Beck in the alien host's apartment, where he finds the decomposing body of the previous host. That sequence was longer and more complicated, but the producers lobbied to cut it. Shoulder explains he didn't fight them too much on it, and feels that this opening actually works better. The opening scene was shot in a real bank, with a mounted video camera for the bank surveillance footage and done in one take after multiple rehearsals. A robber takes off and makes his getaway in a sweet black Ferrari. Dude is totally not interested in keeping a low profile. Always cost conscious, the production was initially hesitant to use Ferraris because they were expensive. 
The producer suggested the much cheaper Corvette as an alternative, but Shoulder held his ground. He explains that the Vets had fiberglass bodies and wouldn't dent for starters, and the Ferrari just made way more visual impact for the audience. Speaking of Jack Shoulder, here's our directed by credit. The Hidden was Shoulder's third feature in a row for Bob Shea and New Line Cinema. He made his debut with the 1982 film Alone in the Dark, then helmed the cult classic Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenge, then landed the job helming The Hidden. For his part, Shoulder cites this film as his favorite of all his work. And look, I'll give Jack Shoulder this. He knows how to open a movie. We get a bank robbery immediately followed by a high-speed chase through the city in that lovely black Ferrari. No boring exposition here, just straight to the good stuff. I mean, Jesus, this dude's driving down a sidewalk in a park. Initially, this scene was going to be shot on Wilshire Boulevard, but Shoulder was skeptical they'd be allowed to shoot on a major street. And his team reassured him it wouldn't be a problem, but when it came time to roll camera, they weren't allowed to shoot on Wilshire. It turns out this was sort of a happy accident, though, because they wound up shooting the cooler park chase sequence in MacArthur Park. And our driver hits a dude in a wheelchair. <laughs> I think that's 10 points. From there, we take a quick detour to meet one of our stars, actor Michael Nury, who's asking one of our robber's neighbors if he has any info. When's the last time you saw him? Oh, I haven't seen him in about a week. I gotta say it, the car chase here really is something. They blast the car through the old cliche pane of glass, and I'm not entirely sure how they didn't kill the two stunt guys while doing it. For his part, Shoulder says even the other stunt guys talk about how great that gag was. And the stuntman took that hit. And it looks surprisingly realistic. Unfortunately, our robber is running out of road and about to drive into a wall of cops like the ones that took down the fireflies at the ends of the Devil's Rejects. I suppose this is a good time to point out that this movie really is a who's who of B-movie actors, too. Nuri arrives accompanied by his partner, Ed O'Ross. Ross is one of those guys you may not know by name, but definitely know by face. Most people remember him as the drug dealer and Lethal Weapon who freaks out when the general burns Mr. Joshua's arm to demonstrate how loyal his men are to him. And he's joined by Richard Brooks, who's probably best known for his stint as attorney Paul Robinette on Law & Order. And our robber is Chris Mulkey, another guy who's not necessarily a name you'd know unless you really love B-movies and TV. Mulkey's resume is amazing. He's got almost 300 credits and has been in major films, low-budget films, and plenty of television. Anyway, the real crime here is them destroying this Ferrari. On the film's commentary track, Shoulder explains that people to this day ask him about destroying the Ferraris. And yes, they really did. Turns out they had four Ferraris in total for the chase sequence. One was just a shell for the explosion scene, one was in good running shape, and the two others were somewhere in between in terms of quality. So it's not like they destroyed four new Ferraris, at least. Despite being full of lead and in a major accident, DeVries is still going. Dude's like a Terminator. After blowing him and the Ferrari up, DeVries winds up in the hospital where the prognosis looks dire. Well, we also get a rundown of his criminal rampage, and it's amazing. He killed 12 people, wounded 23 more, stole six cars, most of them Ferraris. Robbed eight banks, six supermarkets, four jewelry stores, and a candy shop. Six Speaking of B-movie icons, back at the station, we meet none other than the late, great Clue Gulliger. Gulliger had also worked with Shoulder on Freddy's Revenge. And Clarence Felder is here in his default role, Cop at the Precinct. If the precinct here looks green and a little odd, it's because it's a set built on an actual location. Shoulder had the set built in some empty area of the Lincoln Heights Jail and turned it into a police precinct. The green color was the production designer's choice. The rationale was that they wanted no blue in the film because blue was calming and relaxing, so they went with colors that would make the audience more unsettled. 
Moving along, we've got more characters to meet here because our other star, Kyle McLaughlin, has finally arrived. Lloyd Gallagher, FBI. McLaughlin has become sort of famous for being a fed, both here and in Twin Peaks. And in typical odd couple action movie fashion, Michael Nury's loose cannon cop Beck is going to partner with the odd and presumably buttoned up Agent Gallagher. This is Agent Lloyd Gallagher, FBI Seattle. You'll be working with him the next few days. If decades of watching these movies has taught me anything, it's that hilarity is about to ensue. What's really interesting here, and the thing a lot of people never talk about when discussing The Hidden, is that McLaughlin's performance is surprisingly nuanced and understated for this type of film. He's as much the title character of The Hidden as the alien he's chasing. He's another extraterrestrial hiding in plain sight, trying to pass as human. Shoulder revealed that McLaughlin achieved the understated performance by pretending that he was basically wearing a mask in every scene. You always know there's something slightly weird about the character, but it could just be that he's odd the way McLaughlin plays it. There's a sort of tragicness to Gallagher, and the approach here really sells that in a beautifully understated way. It just goes to show you that because a movie is a B-movie, that doesn't mean it can't have great, nuanced performances and the like. In a narrative twist of fate, it turns out they're looking for the same guy, and since he's about to be headed to the morgue, this could be one real short movie. So who are we looking for, public enemy number one? His name is Jack DeVries. Turns out the celebrating might have to wait, because DeVries isn't human. He's possessed by an alien parasite, and he's passing it to a new host. It's really hard not to look at Friday the 13th, Jason Goes to Hell, and not see how the hidden influenced it with the idea of evil Jason being able to body hop. This is the first real chance for Kevin Yeager's FX work to shine. The parasite is suitably disgusting, and the fake heads, especially Bill Boyette's, look incredible. Yeager made such a convincing prop head for actor Bill Boyette that Boyette insisted they move it so he couldn't see it. It freaked him out that much. Shoulder explains the evil alien was originally conceived as a more black, liquid, membranous thing than that he hired Kevin Yeager to handle the effects because he'd worked with Rick Baker and he'd been to art school. Shoulder really wanted more of an artist instead of a traditional makeup effects guy, and Yeager ticked that box. Shoulder was insistent the evil alien should be black. If Gallagher was going to be presented as a golden light at the end of the film, the black alien provided both a visual and philosophical contradiction. He goes on to add that he likes to shoot his own effects scenes. Normally, you'd let second unit handle these kind of shots, but Shoulder feels that in his experience, the second unit shoots effects shots as effects, often missing the emotional or human component of those scenes. Shoulder prefers to shoot them himself because he focuses more on the emotional core of a scene than the effect. And even if that only makes the shot 5% better, it's still a better sequence. And the first thing our alien does in his new host? Picks up some tunes and beats the shit out of this clerk. The record store sequence was filmed in an actual record store on Melrose in Los Angeles. God, I miss the days of record stores. Back with our odd couple cops, Beck thinks the case is done, but Gallagher insists it's just getting started. And Gallagher's right, because Beck immediately catches a new case. The murder of the record store clerk by the alien. Beck is now more interested in the case, and Gallagher is going to clue him in that their target keeps changing identities. But well, he fails to mention he's doing it literally by hopping into new bodies. <laughs> I'm sure that will come up later. And I guess they must be paying FBI agents really well because Gallagher drives one sweet Porsche. Or maybe he got a discount. What'd you do, steal it? Yeah. This is another clue that maybe Agent Gallagher isn't exactly who we think he is. 
Kyle McLaughlin landed the role of Gallagher late in pre-production, but Shoulder admits he had second thoughts about the casting because he felt McLaughlin looked too small. He says he changed his mind when he saw him through the camera lens because he had that movie star quality that makes you larger than life when hit with the lights and sets and all of that. Personally, I think the idea that Gallagher looks small and unassuming actually works in the film's favor. Nuri is the gruff, tough guy cop already, and Gallagher being small and relegated to that one body against an alien who could literally transfer himself into a monstrous bodybuilder if it wanted to really makes the odds Gallagher faces in tracking down the alien seem that much more daunting. If you're wondering why this alien is taking over human bodies, listening to loud music, stealing fast cars and money, and murdering people, well, it's at least partially because there's a senator in town who wants to run for president. Is it true you'll be announcing your campaign plans this oh, Tuesday? Oh, you'll have to wait for next Tuesday for sure. It's not really well explained why this matters, but I think the idea is he's going to take over the future president. This is like that Simpsons Treehouse of Horror segment where Kang and Kodos poses Bob Dole and Bill Clinton so they can rule the earth. In the original script, the senator wasn't a senator, but was instead already the vice president. In the end of that version, he's not killed. The alien simply headed back to Washington, D.C. with presumably dire results for humanity. The bad news here is our alien picked a lousy host. This guy's got a bad heart, and he's probably not long for this world, so he's going to have to find another host, and fast. But first, he's going to need some new wheels. And if you're not long for this world, you definitely might as well splurge and get a Ferrari. I mean, this movie really went all in on the cars. Anyway, with a sweet new set of wheels, he's going to go pick up some chicks. It goes very well. Fuck off. Back with our two cops, we learn why Gallagher's so interested in this case. I guess you could say it's personal. He killed my partner. After striking out with the ladies, our evil alien is on the prowl. And he hits the jackpot when he finds a stash of weapons that would arm a small country. But his ticker's still on the fritz. This alien burns through human hosts quickly. And given that this one is already on his last legs, he's going to have to migrate again soon. Over at the station, the guys are still following leads. And this seems like as good a time as any for Richard Brooks to show us Chekhov's flamethrower. What the hell is that? Flamethrower, man. Can you believe it? Patrol picked us up off some homeboy on the street. Because you know that thing's gonna turn back up in the last act of this film. The flamethrower was an addition to the film from Jack's shoulder. As mentioned, the original script had a much darker, more ambiguous ending with the alien getting away. Shoulder felt that wasn't very satisfying and knew they needed a more definitive ending. Screenwriter Jim Coff was apparently not thrilled with the change. The irony here is he almost got the director's gig for this film, so he could have made it any way he wanted. Alright, so one of the things I love about these B-action movies is they always kind of follow the same story beats, especially the unlikely buddy cop movies. You just know, at some point, that they're going to wind up at the main cop's house for an awkward dinner, and that's where we're headed now. Beck has a wife and daughter, and things between Gallagher and the daughter seem weird. I think this implies that because she's a kid, and since kids see the world in a different way than adults do, that she realizes he's not exactly human. Gallagher, for his part, may be more than human, but he also has a very low tolerance for booze. I mean, he gets so drunk, he even mentions where he's from. Ross Alhock. That's in the United States? Hmm, that doesn't sound like anywhere on Earth. He does make an important revelation here, though. He lost his wife and kid to this alien, too. Shoulder describes himself as a humanist filmmaker, and feels that this scene really is sort of the thematic heart of the movie, because while the hidden is basically about one alien chasing down another, both are trying to figure out what it means to be human, albeit for different reasons. The director explains he did some passes and rewrites on the script solely with the idea of upping the film's humanity. 
Here, he added the daughter, who was not in the original script, as a way of both humanizing Beck by giving him a home life that deviates from the traditional B-movie cop and allowing Gallagher to quietly explore what being human is by seeing it reflected in the family dynamic. This also figures into the film's final scene in a lot of ways. That scene doesn't work quite the same way without this one setting it up an hour earlier. And after an awkward dinner, it's time for the 80s action movie staple, the scene in a strip club. We really are just ticking all the B-movie boxes today. Anyway, the cops spot the Ferrari outside, so now Beck and Gallagher are on their way. They're not going to be happy when they get to the club, though, and not just because the early bird drink specials are over, but because our alien has upgraded. I'm guessing many of you guys would absolutely let this alien probe you. This is actress Claudia Christian, who's also had quite a career and is probably best known for her work on Babylon 5. She's also done a ton of video game voice acting work over the years in games like World of Warcraft, Fallout 76, and too many others to list. The bad news is the guys are no closer to our alien assassin. The worst news is the bodies are really piling up now. In a span of 12 hours, I've got five bodies. Not counting Miller, who dies because he runs out of blood. While they're lamenting all this paperwork, our alien is trying to kill some patrol officers. This guy was actually an assistant director on the film. Beck and Gallagher are in hot pursuit. Beck isn't all that great a shot from a moving car, but Gallagher sure is. At any rate, it looks like they have her, but she escapes into a creepy mannequin warehouse where a shootout ensues. In the original script, this was a shoe warehouse instead of a mannequin warehouse. Shoulder felt that setting didn't work, but that the mannequin warehouse did because the mannequins were sort of a metaphor for the aliens pretending to be human but not quite being as lifelike as actual humans. Surprisingly, mannequins aren't cheap, and the movie couldn't really afford to buy a whole warehouse full of them after splurging on fancy cars, so the art department took the four they did buy, created molds, and made styrofoam versions to fill out the set. Low-budget filmmaking really does require some inventiveness. During the shootout, Beck hits her multiple times, but it doesn't even slow her down. They have her cornered on the roof, but she's still packing and nails Beck in the shoulder. He's hanging by a thread, but before she can send him plummeting to his doom, she's getting blasted by Gallagher, who rescues Beck and then in one of those totally badass 80s action moves goes right back to blasting her. Since the lead bullets aren't working, he's off to plan B, his weird space phaser that looks like something you'd see decades later in a Men in Black movie. <laughs> Claudia Christian is not going down without a fight. I'm not coming out yet. And Beck now officially knows something really weird is going on. Shoulder says when he first met Michael Nury that he couldn't understand why the actor wasn't a huge star. Shoulder found him charming, funny, and felt that he had a sort of Cary Grant, good-looking everyman quality about him. He quickly figured out why Nuri wasn't a star, though. As he reports, the actor was often difficult to work with, and they had a genuine personality conflict. As it turns out, Nuri was hardly the only guy in the running for the role. According to sources, Mel Gibson, Harrison Ford, Kurt Russell, Michael Keaton, Nick Nolte, Gary Busey, Tommy Lee Jones, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, and a bunch of other named talents were considered to play Tom Beck. Or as Russell Mulcahy would say, the usual list of the same 20 leading men producers trot out for every movie. Personality issues aside, I like that they went with Nuri. He brings a sort of beleaguered everyman quality to the role, and it works. Anyway, our alien dives off the roof, and then we get what feels like an homage to 1986's Night of the Creeps and 1982's The Thing as the alien flees her dying body right into a dog. Naturally, Beck wants answers, but Gallagher won't give him any, so he pulls rank and arrests him, which leads them discovering his phaser. 
But wait, there's more. Seattle FBI says Agent Lloyd Gallagher was killed in a forest fire about a month ago. Well, that's going on. Our alien dog needs a human host. Fortunately, his owner, Clarence Felder, is right here. Then Gallagher finally spills the beans. Miller, Stripper, DeVries were the same. And it's not human. And we get an important bit of info here, too. But I don't have to look for it anymore. It knows I'm here. It'll come after me. Murray and McLaughlin really do have great screen chemistry. Each agreed to do the film if the other was involved in the production. Anyway, if you're wondering if Beck is buying any of this, the answer is not a word. Gallagher might be locked up, but I have a feeling our alien lieutenant might be able to spring him. Guess he picked the perfect body for the job. And if you're watching the video version, here's a young Lin Shay as an extra in this scene. Then things go from bad to worse as the evil alien manages to procure Gallagher's special space gun. The one thing that can actually kill it. Man, we're just piling on the third act complications right now. Honestly, if you wanted to write a B sci-fi horror action script, studying the story beats of the hidden would probably teach you more than dropping six figures on film school. It's a literal masterclass on how to structure these kinds of stories with efficiency and just enough character development to make them feel human in spite of the crazy premises. The lieutenant looks like he has the good guys in check. He's got Beck as a hostage, and they're going to get Gallagher to finish them both once and for all. But Beck makes his move, and the LAPD blasts their lieutenant. Uh, you know he's not going down like that. Beck eventually heads to the holding cells, and now he's definitely a believer in what Gallagher's telling him. He's Masterson. Is he dead? The real Masterson. Yeah. And just like that, the boys are back together and on the case. And really, not a moment too soon, because the climax is right around the corner. If you didn't believe me, here comes Lieutenant Masterson. The way he comes through here is a real Tony Montana moment. Oh, and he's going to give us our last big reveal. How do you like being human? It's all right. Yeah, I mean, I think we all figured out Gallagher was an alien already, but sure. Oh, shit, Danny Trejo is in here, too. Well, was in here. And Masterson decides to finish them with a bazooka, which feels like overkill. But then Beck gets in a headshot, which saves the day momentarily. But that slippery alien will lose them again, though he left a handy blood trail so they can track him down. The bad news is the alien's already moved into Edo Ross, who's off to take over the senator. If this hotel looks familiar, it's because it's the Park Plaza Hotel, which has been used in tons of movies from Nixon and Chaplin on through to The Hidden. Willis, naturally, is not going down without a fight either. And then he takes out Beck. One of the things I love about The Hidden is the way Shoulder just lets the actors act. Each actor who plays the evil alien brings their own sort of unique take to it. Boyette is oddly hilarious and sort of loosey-goosey when it was him. Claudia Christian vamps it up during her turn, but also gets a great death scene. Felder is a mixture of all of them, both stiff in some instances, like someone trying to figure out how to move as a human, and then wonderfully casual when the killing starts. Then there's Edo Ross, who just plays it like Schwarzenegger in The Terminator. Honestly, we might have missed out by not casting Edo Ross as a T-1000 or something in one of those Terminator flicks. I think he'd have been great. We then get the Dark Knight of the Soul Popeye point. Beck's down for the count. The alien is in the senator, and things look bleak. But Gallagher's gonna dig deep and man or alien up and finish this thing. And yeah, not a moment too soon, because our alien definitely got to the senator. I want, I want to, to be, be president. president. 
But before things can get completely out of hand, here comes Gallagher. <laughs> got 20 bucks says he's bringing that flamethrower. And nailed it. But that's only half the battle because here comes the slug. That phaser is definitely not set on stun as he vaporizes it once and for all. Shoulder says they actually had a more elaborate alien slug for this final sequence, one that grew and morphed, but they ultimately scrapped it because they felt like this was Gallagher's moment and the bigger alien sort of detracted from that. And really, I think this was the right choice. Back at the hospital, things are looking bad for Beck, but maybe Gallagher can heal him. Huh, guess not. But the next best thing is to put his alien essence in Beck's body. Back in the day, there was a lot of conjecture about what the ending scene here actually meant. It only got more confusing once you knew about Jim Coff's more open-ended original ending in the script where the alien gets away in Senator Holt. For a very long time, some people assumed this was Gallagher sacrificing himself to heal Beck, but that's not accurate. Shoulder himself has confirmed that like the evil alien, Gallagher is really just a meat suit for an extraterrestrial. However, during his time on Earth, seeing Beck and his family, Gallagher now has a better understanding of what it is to be human. And having lost his own wife and child, he sees an opportunity to become Beck and spare the family the grief of losing their husband and father, while also getting a surrogate family too. This sequence would have had a slightly different tenor with the original ending, wherein we would assume Gallagher transferred into Beck not so much as an act of humanity and altruism, but because he was going to have to continue to hunt his prey. Personally, I think Shoulder was right to make the change. While I love a good, ambiguous, downbeat, open ending, I think the more humanistic approach here is sweeter, more in line with the theme of the film Shoulder wanted to make, and it just works. So, we get a happy ending. Except the daughter totally knows he's an alien. For his part, Shoulder sums this one up pretty perfectly, saying The Hidden is a B-movie that sort of transcends being a B-movie. I'd be inclined to agree with him. He also says he's very pleased with how it turned out and gives a lot of credit to the original script. Oh, hey, look at that. Some of Kevin Yeager's effects team included Howard Berger and Robert Kurtzman, the K and the B of KNB effects. All right, let's take a quick break and talk about the legacy of The Hidden. The Hidden has gone on to be regarded as one of the multitude of great 80s B-cult movies, but it was only a modest hit when it debuted on October 30th, 1987. I couldn't find the exact budget for this one, but the estimate is $5 million. The film grossed almost $10 million during its theatrical release, so it did turn a profit. I suspect The Hidden might have been a bigger hit if they'd given the theatrical run more time. The film was not going to be a blockbuster straight out of the gate, but audiences were starting to discover it through word of mouth and the like. Unfortunately, the film never got enough lead time on the big screen to really cultivate an audience. By 1988, it was released on VHS and Laserdisc, and it really started to find its footing. In the intervening decades, it's jumped to DVD and Blu-ray, picking up new fans at every turn. As proof, the film currently has a 75% positive rating from critics at aggregator site Rotten Tomatoes. The audience score is 73% with over 5,000 ratings, so this one has definitely found an appreciative audience over the years. The film even generated a sequel, released direct-to-video in July of 1994. That film picks up after the original, but replaces Michael Nury and gives his now grown-up daughter a bigger role. It's not very good. Not nearly on par with the original, but maybe worth a look if you're bored. The Hidden really should have launched Jack Shoulder's career, but for some reason it didn't. 
Schoner worked consistently until the early 2000s, but a lot of the projects he did were not as successful as The Hidden. He did direct Wishmaster 2 and an Omen TV movie and a lot of other odds and ends, but he never really got a chance to recapture the magic of The Hidden, which is a shame because I think this film shows Shoulder was a super talented filmmaker. He deserved a better fate. Michael Nury, for his part, never became the next Cary Grant, but he has carved out a nice career for himself doing a lot of television and some film work. From soap operas to turns on primetime dramas like House and Law and & Order, he's put together a really nice little career as a working actor. Like Shoulder, though, I think he probably deserved a bigger career than what he actually got. Kyle MacLachlan was arguably the breakout star of The Hidden. He went on to be the aforementioned Agent Dale Cooper in David Lynch's Twin Peaks. He was in Oliver Stone's The Doors, and has continued to work in film and television for decades. And finally, we come to Claudia Christian. Christian has gone on to a very prolific career as a voice actress in video games, done a ton of television, and even turned up in Maniac Cop 2. It's hard to shake the feeling that everyone involved in The Hidden deserved a better career in the wake of the film, but that all of the major players here went on to continue working and have long and enduring careers is still a win. If you've never seen The Hidden, I'm going to suggest you remedy that as soon as possible. This one is easier than ever to see, available on Blu-ray from Warner Brothers at a very reasonable price. The disc looks good, comes with some footage from the FX test for the film, and features an entertaining commentary track from Jack Shoulder. I'd have loved more features on this one, like why not let us hear from Nuri and McLaughlin in either commentary tracks or at least a featurette, but for a modestly successful film from 1987, I'm glad we at least got a package with just more than the movie. Anyway, no one wants a movie night that's just one movie, so allow me to be your cult movie concierge and suggest several other films that pair well with this one for your next movie marathon. I think the most obvious choice here is clearly John Carpenter's 1982 classic The Thing. That story about a group of scientists and colleagues trapped in an Antarctic research station with an alien who can basically become anything it comes into contact with is a bona fide must-see and it pairs very nicely with The Hidden. While The Thing has more mystery and paranoia in its story, everyone in there wonders who has or hasn't been assimilated, something this film doesn't really have, the two films have a lot of complementary ideas at play in them and both are fantastic. If you're looking for a third movie, you have a ton of options here. If you want to keep with that Who's the Thing vibe, you might want to go with one of the numerous versions of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. If you'd like a more cult B-movie experience, try Night of the Creeps. If you love the badass action of the alien hunting down its prey, you could go with Terminator. I know, I just cheated and gave you three movies. Sue me. No matter what you pick, you're going to have a good time with The Hidden. This one is legitimately great on its own, while often reminding you of other great movies as well. One of the ever-present dangers of doing this show is the idea that we often remember things as better than they really were. I'm not sure if that's humanity's inherent optimism or what, but I'm sure we can all point to things we remember being amazing or terrifying or fun that we revisit decades later and discover they really don't hold up. The Hidden suffers no such fate. This one was a blast back in 1987, and it remains a blast today. In some ways, I'd argue The Hidden is even more fun now. These kinds of modestly budgeted B-movies that got theatrical releases were pretty common in the 80s. I mean, that's been most of the stuff covered on this show so far. However, in the 21st century, we really don't see these kinds of films playing multiplexes. They're straight to streaming at best. Beyond that, I'm always going to argue that a good B-movie from that era, filled with practical effects and made by genuine craftsmen, is preferable to a lot of the Sola CGI stuff we get today from guys who want to pretend they're paying homage to 80s cult cinema without actually understanding what made 80s cult cinema so amazing. Hint, it's not a rip-off Carpenter score or Suspiria escalating.
But Hidden, like so many of the films of this era, has aged really well. Sure, the cars and tech and clothes feel dated by today's standards, but consider this. It's almost 40 years old. Now, imagine watching a 40-year-old movie in 1987. It would have been black and white and seemed way older. This is my awkward way of saying 80s cult cinema is really aging like a fine wine. They still look good, the effects still work, and they're still fun without feeling completely ancient from another time. They have a certain timeless quality that makes them not only worth revisiting, but celebrating. We'll never see a period of filmmaking like this one again. So, what do you think of The Hidden? Have you seen this one before, or is this your first experience with it? Leave me a comment and let me know. I may feature some on future episodes. <laughs> I keep saying that, but I never do it. If you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe. If you're on another podcast platform, consider leaving me a review and share them with your friends. Until next time, I'm Mike Bracken, and you've just experienced another trip to B-Movie Babylon. The video vault is now closed. <laughs>